conductive way And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Katie Schaefer. Today we're discussing Watchmen by Alan Moore. It is quite the lengthy comic. I think this is one of the longest comic book collections I've read as far as, you know, like a 12-issue series goes. My Kindle copy is roughly 415 pages, give or take. But Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I mean, my issue of Watchmen, like the, the typical paperback or trade paperback copy is almost an inch thick. Yes. And I'll tell you, it took me several hours to read it, which is not the norm for comics for me. But this one is so dense that it's it's just a lot to take in. And one of the reasons it is so dense is because there are excerpts from this fictional book within the comic. It comes at the end of each issue and it's, you know, excerpts from under the hood. So you have a ton of material that you normally don't get with comic books in this. You know, you're practically reading a mini novella within the comic book series. Yep, pretty much. And there's a bunch of each chapter except chapter 12, the last chapter, as an excerpt from something. And I think it's the first three or four are the Hollis Mason book. And then the rest are applicable uh, further details upon whatever character or interest the chapter is talking about. And I'll tell you, sometimes they seem very unconnected to this story. And then an issue or two later, you realize, oh, I see why this is in there. So, well, it might seem like, do I really need to read this? You do. You really do. It's kind of hard to know how to tackle this comic because not only have so many people discussed it by now, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, do you go issue by issue or do you just sort of talk about all the things and approach it that way. So I'm going to leave that decision up to you because you had the chance to reread it. And I unfortunately did not. I started and did not get very far. I have read it semi-recently, though, because I was planning on doing this episode much sooner than I actually did. But I'll leave the discussion up to you as far as how you want to tackle it. Oh, let's talk about all of it at once. Let's go okay. through it as we as we find because there this is one of those comics that and this is pretty normal for Alan Moore to kind of it laces itself in between all of these different perspectives and across the timeline so that it is not it's almost like a Christopher Nolan film in that it is not chronological. You know, in particular, the issues dealing with Cap with uh, Dr. Manhattan and some of the stuff dealing with, um, God, what is her name? S Sally Jupiter's daughter. Why don't I remember? Lori. Oh, my God. Yes. Thank you. I just kept thinking the, sil the Silk Spectre. Um, some of the stuff dealing with Lori and her mom, like it, it kind of all plays into one narrative that's overarching, but mm -hmm. each comic kind of fills in these different parts until you get to the end and you have one vision of what's been going on over the past, I don't know, 30 years or so. Yeah. 1955 to 1985, which is when this comic takes place. Right. In an alternate 1985 anyway. I do want to talk about how these characters are perceived because I feel like that's a good place to start with comics you have a lot of times where you have heroes but then you have certain characters who aren't seen as heroes but they're seen as vigilantes instead and that is certainly the case here you know rorschach is nobody's hero really and you have this group of characters that the public doesn't really seem to particularly like it, at least you know the original group when we see those flashback moments and it's just one of those things where I feel like the amount of how well people in the public know who you are factors into that a lot you know Batman is a vigilante he's not a hero but yet Superman's a hero even though nobody knows his real identity so that is something that's a little different in that front in that instance but you know someone like tony stark as iron man he's a hero because everyone knows he's tony stark they can put a face to this hero's name right and i think in this book because 
none of these heroes except Dr. Manhattan have superpowers. Like they're all just regular folks except yes. Dr. Manhattan. They kind of play in, in this in-between role where in this story, they are very much either vigilantes or heroes or some kind of, in the case of the comedian, occupying some kind of n weird in-between place. Uh -huh. And I think... How you view these characters depends on who you are when you read it. Because I've read this book twice, and once was almost exactly 10 years ago. And I'll tell you, like, my perspectives on who the heroes are uh, changed pretty dramatically. Like, I had so much more sympathy for Rorschach in my first reading than I do now. Mm -hmm. And I found that so interesting and such a product of Alan Moore's skill. Because this is very much like honestly most of his comics this is very much an alan moore story like there's there's just so much going on in it and it's all very representative of who alan moore is and how he writes his stories and that is what makes these characters kind of changeable depending on who you are even though i would say really night owl and silk specter are the true quote-unquote heroes of this story in that they are essentially good people who are trying to help and save the world. Whereas everyone else has their own motives that are very much wrapped up in who they are as people. Whereas for Lori and Dan, it feels like a more selfless impetus that's pushing them forward. Yeah, even though I didn't get a chance to read through it for a third time before this, it was one of those things where the first time I read it and then that waiting period between the next time I read it did make a difference because it's not only just, you know, the fact that it's 2019 now and things are very, very different from, you know, 86, 87 when this was being written and released issue by issue, but just the way some of the characters are portrayed. You mentioned Lori's mother and all of the things that happened to her were by no means acceptable, but because of when they happened, it was something that everyone just kind of let go, even the people who knew about what happened, which is, in a way, even more of a tragedy. Right. It gets kind of brushed under the rug as like a shameful thing for her and not so much anyone else. It's very... She's kind of looked at as, well, you shouldn't have been doing space and this wouldn't have happened to you and uh -huh. now obviously that's not accurate and how we feel now um and i think a lot of how you have to look at this book is what was going on in 1985 because in 1985 the berlin wall hadn't fallen yet you know there was still very much a cold war on and so in the book all of this pressure with russia and this omnipresent fear of a World War Three was a constant thing that people thought about. You know, people like you and I who grew up after that time period, which the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, we don't know what that's like. And so for us reading this, it's very much removed from the original place that the book is written in. And so it gives us all an interesting perspective on like, okay, because the feelings of the people in the book are not as far removed for when it was written as they are now. Now, like when it was written, those people would have known what it felt like to be terrified of a World War III. Whereas now we're like, okay, that's a possibility, but it isn't as pressing on us as it was then. Right. I do want to dive into Dr. Manhattan a little more real quick here because he's a character who has this human-like form, but is not remotely human at all in his emotions or anything like that. And he really doesn't care what happens to anyone. And he's sort of seen as this godly presence who doesn't need to walk around with clothes on because he looks like a giant spurf, I guess. I'm <laughs> not really sure the reasoning behind that. Or that Wang is that, just hanging out there. The fact that he just doesn't want to at least attempt to fit in and he is such a presence not only because of his size but because of what he can do you know he can just make things disappear and 
you have moments where he walks in on something bad happening and he just doesn't do anything about it, even though he's the only person who has the power to essentially snap his fingers and make all of the bad things happening go away. Right. And I think it's like the fourth chapter that explores uh, Dr. Manhattan, uh, things from Dr. Manhattan's uh, perspective. And I think in the first three, we look at it and it feels like, what's going on with this guy? He he does feel very remote and removed. And then in the that chapter, we get to learn how he's experiencing the world and time in that he is living and aware of all times at the same time. You know, for him, all moments are the same moment and he's just kind of existing within that and how it sells him as being what we would consider a godlike person. He knows, seems to know all, is seems unable to or seems unlimited in his abilities. But when we read that issue, you learn that he is incredibly limited because he feels that his all of his actions are predetermined. He feels like he can't make a choice. Like, this is just how things are going to go, and I'm just going to exist. And I love the fact that the comic doesn't necessarily endorse that that's the correct option. It doesn't reaffirm the idea that he couldn't make other choices because uh-huh. at the end, his choices are mutable. He can make different decisions. And so we all ask, well, could you have maybe stopped the comedian from killing that woman? Or did you just choose not to because you embraced the idea that time is a mutable, is an immutable path because that's how you experience it? Even though humans, obviously, we experience time from moment to moment and not as one long thing that we're all living through all at the same time. The other thing about chapter four that I like is the fact that they let you see who John was before the accident. You know, he was this normal guy. He was fixing watches and he happened to leave his lab coat in one of the experiment rooms or whatever it was. And that's when everything went wrong. He gets trapped inside. I forget what it is, but, you know, it's just one of these things. A particle decelerator chamber, I think, is essentially what it is. It takes atoms apart from each other is what I learned from it anyway. Okay. And then he becomes Dr. Manhattan. So you have to imagine that at least part of him still thinks the way John does, but all of a sudden he's just this totally different person from what we see in his past and then you're kind of like okay yeah he could make these decisions to help people if he wanted to but it's like he's lost all of his humanity in the process of this horrible thing that happened to him right he no longer seems to have empathy for humanity or any understanding of what it is to be a human and which is understandable as someone who it's who it's explained that you know he's essentially turned into atoms and particles and then uses his immense brain power or something to reassemble himself and that's what gives him the ability to do pretty much anything from sending an entire crowd of people into their homes to going to Mars and building a fancy house. Very fancy house. (laughs) It is very fancy. That can fly. And it's something that allows you as a human, or at least allowed me to understand the journey that it would take you from going and being a regular person with all of the anxieties and emotions and experiences that regular folks have to you are now outside of humanity. You are now someone who has experienced things that no one else on earth has or probably ever will experience. And so you have an incredibly difficult time relating to humans and how they, how they feel things and how they work. And it gives us such an interesting outside look at how this world that's incredibly different from our own has developed and how Dr. Manhattan is trying to deal with that and trying to find his place in the world as opposed to the place that, you know, the U.S. government has assigned him as being their, you know, secret weapon to stop the Russians or the place that uh, Jenny Slater and Laurie assign him as their partner or the place that all of the 
uh, other heroes assign him as like a, a defender of humanity. Like he's both all of these things and none of them at the same time. It's just so amazing how much Alan Moore packed into the Dr. Manhattan character while still having him really feel nothing. And it's almost like he's this godlike psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> and that really comes across. And then on the other end of that, you have someone like Adrian Vate, who is very much still human, but also super, super strange. <laughs> Oh, God, now that guy, that guy is a sociopath, you know, someone who is so convinced that they know everything and uh -huh. can twist the world to be what they want it to be, that they have, they have no compassion for everyday humans, and they're arrogant to an extreme that most people outside of, you know, people who are presidents and prime ministers and whatever, who literally run the world, feel like I personally couldn't understand deciding, oh, well, I'm just going to change the world and kill a couple million people and then just everything will be fine. Like, no, dude, who are you to do that? And he has no humility. That's the word I was looking for. He has no humility or understanding of his own humanity and his own limited place in the world. Yeah, so I totally agree with you that by the time you get to the end of this, it's like Dan and Lori are almost the only two redeemable characters, and they really feel like the only heroes of this story, you know. They're trying to help their friends, <laughs> they're trying to save other people they don't even know, and at the beginning of the comic, Dan is so reluctant to even go into his basement, you know. He only ends up there because that's where Rorschach is going to be leaving from. And you see him sitting there kind of dejected because he knows that things aren't like they once were. And it's so easy to relate more to Dan and Lori, I think, than anyone else in this comic. Yeah, because they feel like not that other people don't feel real. Everybody in this comic feels very real, but they feel relatable. Like, these are people who, for those of us who read superhero comics and that kind of media, like we can understand the desire to want to save people, to want to help people, to want to be a force of good in the world. And these are the only two people in this comic who seem to want that and have the ability to make it happen. Like, Rorschach is very much not that kind of person. He is someone who is separate and on the sidelines, who has his own agenda. Whereas Dan and Lori still have a clarity about why they started doing what they did, being superheroes, and why they want to keep doing it and have some perspective about the idea that, like, well, I can only do so much, but I can do more than what I'm doing now. And that's kind of, for me, what makes them different than all the other characters in this book, because they understand their own limitations and their own abilities, even though they're still very much flawed humans. Like you said, Dan is, he's so sad and almost pathetic, kind of as you're reading mm -hmm. it, because he yeah. just feels like he's given up. Right. He's given everything up. And then Lori is kind of stuck in this place where she's essentially a teddy bear for a god someone for him to like hug and hold and help him feel better and she's tired of that role because she knows she's more than that and so when the two of them get together and kind of fully realize their own potential and take it back it's satisfying as a reader and it allows you to put yourself in their shoes without feeling uncomfortable with what you're identifying with Absolutely. I love how this story gets all of these characters from point A in the beginning to point B at the end of the 12 issues. And, you know, this really kicks off with the death of Edward Blake, the comedian who raped Laurie's mother. And we get those flashback scenes as Rorschach is digging into his life to try and figure out who killed him. And he doesn't even know that this guy was the comedian right away. He has to go find this secret 
compartment in his closet. And once he finds the costume, he's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe someone's going to be going around killing all the masks. And so he goes out to warn everyone. And in that moment, you do think he's doing the right thing. But he's a character who tries to connect with others, but I feel like just can never really get there. Right. He can't. He's Rorschach feels like a character and a person who is fundamentally broken. And in his issue, we see why. And he becomes, in that issue, very relatable So and, and fully human, even though he has these ideas and beliefs that are so rigid that they don't fit with humanity because humans... Human success over the past however long that we've existed is, is based entirely on our ability to adapt to our surroundings and situations. And Rorschach is unable to adapt to anything. Like, he holds very rigidly to his uh, belief system and ideas. And in some ways, that makes him admirable. And in some ways, it makes him a madman. And I felt, reading this, I felt much differently about Rorschach than I did the first time I read it. And in this, I just kind of felt pity for him. Mm -hmm. Like he just doesn't, he doesn't understand. And he's been shaped by such a dark society that it's, what could that man have been if he hadn't lived such a dark and dangerous life? He could have been so much more and he's limited by his own experiences. And I should note that it's not that he didn't recognize that Edward Blake was the comedian because they had already worked together if I'm not mistaken, the comedian kind of stuck around longer than the first Silk Spectre and the first Night Owl, but the body wasn't there. So finding the costume made him be like, oh, okay, this is all clicking now. And right. with Blake, some of his and Laurie's story don't even come to fruition until the ninth chapter, which is when you find out that he's her father. And she's had no idea all of these years. And it wasn't from the rape necessarily. It was from a consensual part of the relationship. But yes, I feel like that is something that is so hard to get across because he did rape Janie. And even though I think it's handled in a way that is very 80s of them, which makes sense. Oh, God. So 80s. I, I think... The fact that you could have those two sides of a relationship is something that's important to portray. Right. The How rape is handled in this book is so complicated because it allows Sally Jupiter, who's Silk Spectre's mother, to be this very layered character, even though we don't see a whole lot from her her perspective. And we know immutably that the comedian tried to rape her and we don't find out and I think we find that that particular aspect out within like the first or second comic. And then we don't find out how she really felt about the comedian until real close to the end. And yes, Sally, not Janie. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> Janie Slater. It's cool. And I think getting all these names mixed up. <laughs> it, there's a lot of names. And I think Sally is such a such a real character, someone who has all these complicated feelings and all these issues that she can't resolve within herself and talk to her daughter about, and she just kind of tries to do her best as she goes along. And then you also get to see Lori's perspective of seeing, you know, her knowing that the comedian tried to rape her mother and then finding out, you know, on Mars when she's trying to convince Dr. Manhattan to come and save the world. And she has that moment of realization and you see on her face and in her dialogue how upset she is by it. And then we get some closure at the end. And it, and we never see things from the comedian's perspective. I think that's very important is that the comedian is kind of this cipher that we only get from other people's perspective. So it allows us to kind of wonder, well... What were his intentions in this and how did he feel about all of it and why did he do it? Like, we don't get any of that. We only get how his actions affected the people around him and it becomes more poignant because they do that. Right. And obviously, my mistake on getting those characters mixed up, Janie is the one who 
has a very different kind of relationship with Laurie because they have both dated Dr. Manhattan now. <laughs> yeah, and Laurie is about, like, what, 15, 16 years younger? I think, horrifyingly enough, which was sadly much more normal in 1985 and earlier. Uh, I think Lori is 16 or 15 when her and Dr. Manhattan, who's in his thirties, strike up a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so you can understand why Jane, Jenny, Janie would be like, what the fuck are you doing to me? Why are you doing this? This is a right. child essentially. Different kind of anger there <laughs> as well. Right. Understandably. And I don't think we ever get anything from her perspective, but she does tell her story. You know, during the faux cancer scare, she does talk about her relationship with Dr. Manhattan. And then we see that same relationship from Dr. Manhattan's perspective, even though it's a very emotionless, like his chapter is very emotionless. Like we never really know how he feels, only what he's experiencing. Yeah. So while the story starts with Edward Blake's death, it goes so far beyond that with just the mass destruction that is sort of on the horizon for these characters, and they don't even know it to start. You could see that they're kind of figuring it out as they go because they've stepped away so long for a lot of these characters anyway. And I just think that the way they have this story progressing and unfolding is interesting because of the fact that half of these characters aren't likable if not more than half of them so yeah. you're kind of in this push and pull between wanting to like these characters and wanting them to succeed but also not really liking them because the moral lines are so blurred in this comic you're just like okay you know someone thinks mass destruction is the right thing to do dr manhattan thinks doing nothing is the right thing to do which is beyond ridiculous he's like i'll just go to mars all right see yeah, you guys i'm done with this shit bye and, guys <laughs> and he'll just teleport Lori to and from when she doesn't want to be and it's just like dude <laughs> he, he just takes control of the situation even when no one wants him to take control and it that's feels the wrong abrupt. time to take control no right <laughs> nobody wants him to take control when he does and then he refuses to when he should be stepping in so it's like this guy is it's hard to even call him a guy at this point, but he's so insanely smart that he has to know the difference between right and wrong, even if he doesn't care about these people necessarily. You know, you don't have to care about every single person in order to see why you should save them. Right. And I think it, it takes until the end when he realizes that, you know, each human is the product of an incredible, crazy amount of chance. And that's when he understands that like, oh, well, maybe human life is worth something because it took billions of years to put, you know, you and me and every other human on earth. And we're all a product of the crazy chance of all of our ancestors and then our own parents having babies. And that's the thing, that individuality, that and that um, unique quality that brings him around. And it feels, I'm like, yeah, dude, you probably should have thought about that. And at the same time, it's like, well, that shouldn't matter. These are all also people and their lives mean something, even if they're not these each individual special snowflake and not meaning that in the snowflake, you know, the political way, but in the literal, each snowflake is an individual thing and no one, no two snowflakes look the same. Each human is an each individual thing and no two humans look the same unless you're identical twins, of course. And the book really grasps how, even though Dr. Manhattan likes to present himself as being above humanity, he is still very much a human being because he has these blinders on and this certainty about him that is grounded in no reality even though he thinks he is. He's still very very much a flawed person, and he doesn't even recognize his own flaws. Yeah, it's amazing how oblivious some characters can be in this, and Vate is kind of another one of those characters who is insanely smart, but he's also way too arrogant, and that really gets in the way of him actually doing good, because his way of trying to do good is 
and you know do what he's doing in the best interests of world peace are not remotely peaceful so <laughs> no no and you don't even find out like the real crux of what's going on with adrian until the very end and when you do it's horrific it's so like it is and and i like i said i read this before and then i read it again and was like oh god that's right he's such a terrible person like it's just so shocking that someone can be so quote unquote nice on top and so oblivious to a hu- the the human experience right and that ending is just so dire and i guess do you have anything else you want to talk about specifically with the story before we move on to a few other things because you can't talk about watchmen without also talking about the art of dave gibbons well you can't really talk about comic books without talking about the art in general but i do (laughs) want to give you a chance to mention any other things story-wise because there's so much i feel like someone's going to be yelling at us like you didn't talk about this you didn't talk about this but you know so many people have talked about this there are plenty of opinions and coverage for your watchman needs i think this story is just such an it's such a break from traditional comics and alan moore I know a lot about Alan Moore and I've read a lot of his stuff. And I think for anyone who's ever read any of Alan Moore's work, like his, his writings outside of this, where he talks about his perspectives and all that jazz, this is very much an Alan Moore story. Like this is not something that could have been written by anyone else. And he crafts it with such a unique perspective on what humanity is. And at least in 1985, his outlook on what was hope for humanity and whether or not we were even going to survive. And it becomes like a, an antique perspective from today's worldview now, almost 35 years on and a place that we both can't imagine ourselves. And right now we're living on the brink of it. So it's a story that fits very much into today's day and age. And I wonder if that would feel the same, you know, 20 years ago when we were living in a very different yeah. world, you know, than we are today. Back when I was a small child. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 10. Um, and then I think the only other thing about the story is just how, how well he encapsulates it in the storytelling from how he spreads out the narrative within each 12, each of the 12 Mm -hmm. comics to how he constructs it in regards to like that comic book that Bernard is reading the, the kid on the street corner reading the comics of the, what is it? The tales of the black freighter and how he juxtaposes these two things. And at first it very much feels like, what does this have to do with anything? And then by the end, it feels so prescient that of how, you know, by the end, the character in the Tales of the Black Freighter very much represents the heroes that are left alive. And it's, it's so masterfully done. And you got to give props to Alan Moore for being able to string all of these things together and put them together in such a way that it is a bombshell when you pretty much every page of that last issue is a bombshell. Yeah, I think when you have a non-linear story like this, at first maybe it can be a little jarring, but once you've read it a second or third time and you kind of know what to expect, you can see how all of these things fell into place so well with the narrative and how it leads up to that final chapter where, like you said, it's just one thing after the other. And you're like, oh, wow, okay, that was exhausting. But it was one of those stories that you definitely need that time in between reading it to soak it all in and then adjust your feelings (laughs) the next time you read it because you're understanding different pieces of the story in a different way. There's always something I feel like you can pick up with a comic like this that maybe you didn't get the time before or the time before that. And, you know, you said you've only read it twice. I read it twice. And 
attempted a third time and <laughs> didn't finish. But it's one of those stories that does take a lot out of you. And that's similar to what we discussed with the Joker movie. You know, it is so dire. And I think a lot of that obviously comes through with Dave Gibbons art and the colors by John Higgins. Without all of these visuals, the story would play off a lot differently, I think. And just the fact that the paper that it's on is more like a newspaper. It's not that slick comic book paper. It gives you this different feel when you're reading a physical copy of it. And you just get the sense that it takes place in such a different world. Even though things do get dark, you know, in real life, it's just one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, Gotham is always this dark, dingy city. And you really get that feeling with Watchmen. And I think Dave Gibbons and John Higgins did such an excellent job just getting that to come across the page. Right. And during that era of comics, it wasn't unusual to have like a cover artist who did something that was more eye-catching, we shall say. Yes. And to get people to pick the comic up and then they would have someone else doing the interiors who was probably cheaper. <laughs> and so the interior comic maybe didn't necessarily match the art style of the of the cover. But in this, it is so not that way. Like the art and the coloring and all of that comes together and it feels like something between a cross of like a 1940s cereal that you would see, you know, if you went to the movies, they would have cereals, uh, like these little bits before movies that were maybe five, 10 minutes long of like a continuing adventure of the same characters. It feels like that. And it also feels like a film. It's so well drawn and each character has a very specific look and it all comes together that when you're reading it, it's just as important that you look at the page and you see how the character's expressions are, what's in the background, the signage, everything all comes together to make this story. It's not that just that Alan Moore wrote this great story and this rando, you know, drew some good pictures. It's very much the two halves together make a whole. And John Higgins, the colorist, adds so much to that because this is a comic, like, especially because of the character Rorschach, where the black and the white and the color all come together to set a tone for the story. Mm -hmm. And that tone is so very appropriate so to bleak. the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That it feels, it all feels of a piece. It feels like one person is creating it instead of these three different people who are almost guaranteedly, like, Alan Moore lives in England, so almost guaranteedly on different continents, creating one piece of artwork together in a time when there was no internet. So Alan Moore is physically mailing his scripts to Dave Gibbons, who's doing his drawings, who's then, you know, like, it's just such a complex piece or of artwork. Or faxing them over. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, faxing. Uh, it comes together and feels so so right. I think that's it. It feels right and of a piece and so satisfying. Each page is like a, a separate piece of art. And the iconic imagery that has stood the test of time with this, you know, these characters aren't like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, or anything remotely close to those characters, but you have this smiley face button with a blood drop on it that comic book fans everywhere probably recognize. You have Rorschach and you have Dr. Manhattan, these characters who stand out because of their masks, because of what happened to them. And while, you know, maybe Dan and Lori don't stand out nearly as much, you still have a good amount of iconic imagery that came from these comics. And even, you know, recently... DC revived the button and we got the Doomsday Clock series, which I haven't read in full, but you know that button when you see it pop up in other comics and you're just like, oh boy, what are they doing here? And so... Right, it has meaning. Yeah, I think that means we need to go read Doomsday Clock to figure out what that meaning means now. <laughs> yep, exactly. And I think the biggest part of this is it, you can tell even with Rorschach. Because Rorschach's, you know, 
I think most people know what a Rorschach blot is, where it's a randomization of ink blots all on a page that you interpret what you're seeing for whoever's showing you the ink blots. And if you watch it, if you watch the panels, you can see that Rorschach's mask is changing mm -hmm. in each panel it, and it becomes something different and interpretable. Even though you don't see his face, you can still tell how he feels just from seeing what inkblot is represented on his face. Yeah, they do such a nice job with making these characters come to life. And, you know, Adrian Vait and his ridiculous outfits. It's just so oh, perfect. God, and his cat. Yeah. His big pink cat. Yeah, it is ridiculous, entertaining, heartbreaking, and drab all at the same time. <laughs> Right. And it's so dingy. Yeah. You know, New York, New York in the 80s, which is obviously where this is set, despite they never I don't think they ever actually mentioned New York. It is very representative of what at least I hear because I was born in 1985. So obviously I don't remember the 80s in New York. Uh, very representative of what we hear about it, that it's, you know, for anyone who's watched it the outsiders or anything like that it's very dark and grim and dangerous and the comic really captures that with the backgrounds and how it portrays like the side characters from um the the newspaper man right who's a very big character in this and his his perspective on the world versus how laurie perceives it it becomes so obvious uh, of what kind of setting and what kind of world these people are living in. I do want to take a detour to the least artsy part of Watchmen, which is the under the hood excerpts that I mentioned early on. It's a lot to take in because you're reading this book from Hollis Mason, who is the first night owl, and you're getting this look at the first era of these characters and it's just such a smart move even though it increases the length of the comic by so much because obviously reading something novel like is going to take you a lot longer than reading something that has pictures to go with it but it felt like a crucial part of the story and how it connected the past with the present day yeah exactly because hollis as a character is portrayed so differently than like Dan and Laurie, like the quote unquote current era of superheroes. You know, we get this perspective on how the Minutemen, which was the first group of superheroes in the 50s, on how they were and why they became who they were, which is a lot of what those bits are about, is Hollis explaining his reasoning why he did it and all of them coming together in their history. And it gives you such a rich understanding of how superheroes really dramatically affected mm -hmm. the world, which in my understanding, this is an alternate history. And that's kind of the crux that and Dr. Manhattan are very much the crux of what changed it, what changed history from being the world that you and I live in today to being what's going on in Watchmen is that superheroes became a real thing. They were recognized and thought of as a, a a valid expression of yeah. society as opposed to now, which people who do people who do that, which there are certainly a few people who go out and do that, um, are kind of looked at as like, okay, weirdo, you, you do that. That's bizarre. <laughs> but in this book, it becomes like an acceptable thing to do. And they play a real role so much so that Congress passes a law against it. Right. And it's, such a dramatic effect on society and Hollis Mason's the excerpts from his book are really the only way that we understand the history of these superheroes. Definitely. Do you feel like the excerpts might be a little too long though? Because if you factor in how long this comic is in general, it's over 400 pages. I think kind of no matter what format you get it in now, there are some that are even longer like the absolute edition because it gives you all of this extra stuff. But you figure out of those 400 plus pages, somewhere around 50 of them have to be excerpts because I think the excerpts were five to six pages in each chapter, pretty much. Yeah. I think that those ones are, are, are okay lengthwise, but I think some of the other later 
stuff feels unnecessary, okay. maybe, and unnecessarily long. I thought that the Hollis Mason stuff was very informative, but, like... When they go into, like, I think it's three pages of talking about the person who did the, who created the uh-huh. comic, uh, Tales of the Black Freighter. Like, that stuff, it's like, okay, this plays in for, like, three panels, guys. I don't know that we needed this much information about this yeah. one dude, even though it gives us an explanation as to what Adrian Vett's big plan is. It still feels almost over the top. Yeah, it is a lot to take in. I highly recommend, you know, at least reading through all of that stuff once, but I'll admit I kind of skip over it now just because yeah, it takes so long. And I don't think that's a detriment to the story at all because you can either read the story without the under the hood stuff and just not have that additional context and still understand what's happening, or you can read it and get all of this other information that you weren't expecting. Right. It's, it kind of, it, it gives you background. Yeah. And that is, if you're reading it for the first time, it's very important. But if you've already read it a few times and you kind of know what's in there, then it's not, it's kind of superfluous because it just embroiders the background for you, I guess. Yeah. So I think it's time to move on to one of my least favorite subjects possibly ever. I'm not huge into discussing politics because it's just one of those (laughs) things that I find gets so redundant. You know, history does seem to repeat itself. And I think more so in politics than a lot of other things, maybe. But you can't really talk about Watchmen without bringing up the fact that, you know, this takes place in the Nixon era and the war plays into part of it. You have so many things going on at the time, both time periods, really, with this comic that you can't imagine it not playing a role in the story. Right. And Alan Moore is a very political person, like all of his stuff. Unlike me. Everything he writes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Everything he writes is very political. And like I said before, like at certain points, This book is very much Alan Moore giving you his perspective on the world. And that's not always a good thing, but for sure. I think in particular in regards to like what I said earlier about how this is very representative of the time frame that it was created in because the Cold War was such a big, a big, huge thing in that time frame. And there was so much fear of the destruction of the world, not just, you know, America going to war with Russia or Uh Iran or North Korea. It's literally the whole world is going to die. And that is what everyone lived under during that time period. And I think Alan Moore really tries to tap into that and explore what humanity's reactions are to that. And I think some of what he says is valid and interesting. And I think some of it is like, you just have a really dark perspective on humanity, don't you? And I can't tell if that dark perspective is because of the time frame that he's writing this in, or if it's an accurate reflection of humanity in general. Because obviously, 35 years later, the world is a totally different place. Right. And this is technically set in an alternate reality, but it right. very much mirrors the events that were happening in the 80s. And I am by no means a history buff, unless it's something like, you know, the history of Marvel, (laughs) you know, those things that excite (laughs) me a little more. But as far as actual history goes, not my strong suit in school, something that I never really had much of an interest in. But you do get these glimpses at history and politics through the lens of various forms of entertainment. And that's something that can't be ignored. You know, you have period pieces when it comes to TV and film, and you have those for a reason. You know, so many things in media come from a place in history that inspired someone. You know, even watching Jojo Rabbit recently, you can tell that movie is full of politics, you know, Hitler's in it. (laughs) Right, right. But the perspective is very much modern. Yes. And in today's in today's parlance, like one of the big differences between our world and the world of Watchmen is that um Nixon was never 
uh, Nixon never left office and he gets reelected a third term. Like the Watergate scandal never gets uncovered and Nixon is viewed very much as a hero. And we won the Vietnam War, quote unquote, won, whatever that means. Um, and those two things really dramatically change both the U.S. position in the world and how Americans view themselves. Because in the 70s, Vietnam, for those who aren't aware, um, Vietnam very much dramatically changed how Americans viewed themselves, how the world viewed America, and uh, how we developed as a nation. And this story kind of allows us to see how Americans would have viewed themselves had we not uh, lost the Vietnam War. And if you're willing to read further into it, the lengths that they go to to win the Vietnam War are pretty horrific. Like calling in Dr. Manhattan and what he does to crush the Viet Cong and all of that, It's it makes you question well, is this really a good thing? Right. If this is the lengths we had to go to. And so it allows us to look at this different world where these changes happened and see that, well, it wasn't necessarily any better than the world we got today. And maybe worse if Nixon hadn't been caught, you know, trying to, his people had been caught doing Watergate and all of that. Like it becomes... It allows us to see how complicated these different choices are, and that is such a skillful examination, mm -hmm. especially for a comic book. It's certainly hard to believe that there are ever really any winners in war, because so much is given up yeah. on both sides, even if you think it's for the right reason. And, you know, the U.S., is always going and trying to help these other countries and it does come at a cost. And it's always one of those things where you're trying to weigh the greater good against pretty much everything else that you're doing. And more definitely touches on that here because when you have someone like Dr. Manhattan, that changes everything. He can just make yes. everything go away in the blink of an eye, if he really wanted to. I imagine he could anyway. You know, Earth could just disappear for all we know under his watch. Right. And it puts the perspective in a longer view. You know, we can kind of take a step back and view when we read something like this. We can view how this alternate history is different from our own history and kind of evaluate whether or not this interpretation is a valid one based on the events that happen within it. Like, is this actually how it would have gone down? And how is it different from our current society? And what would be going on today if, you know, these kinds of things had happened, which we get explored in the Watchmen TV show, apparently. But I think that the political aspects of this, it's great to read now because it is so very removed from our society, even down to the point of how, um, you know, the GLBTQ community is represented in this as despite all these changes in society, you know, the lesbian community is represented in this and they are not, they are still struggling and still fighting even in 1985, mm -hmm. which 1985 was a big part of um, a big event uh, because AIDS was becoming such a huge issue. And this book doesn't touch on that, but it's, something that's very different from that happened in our world that didn't happen in this. And so it's, it's such a masterful work in that way. The further we get away from it, the more we're able to look at and compare it to our own society and make a better judgment on our own actions. Right. Well, I think we've covered this broadly quite a bit <laughs> you, you know it's <laughs> broadly it's, that's it's the very word. hard to get to all of the details in something that is the length of Watchmen without sitting down for you know probably a good four hours spending you know 20-30 minutes on each section of this and I think it's just one of those things that for me personally it might have been a little too long but ultimately I gave it a rating of four out of five on Goodreads. Is this 
a top tier comic book for you? Definitely. And I mean, I read this five, ten years or so into my career of comic reading, as it were. And it was definitely unlike anything. And I think it was, it wasn't what got me into Alan Moore. There's a tiny little comic he wrote that got me into him. I think it's four issues. And I don't even remember the name of it. That's how small it is. But it is a very great example of what comic books can do. And I think to a certain extent, Alan Moore was correct when he said this is an unfilmable story in that you could not elicit the kind of emotions and reactions with a film that you can with a comic book. And that this is such a great example of why, because of the, the difference in art styles, rather, you know, the difference in mediums, that's the word, as opposed to film versus comics. Yeah, I have no idea what you read would have read of his that, that would be so short. Maybe I think he has a comic called The Non that's five issues, but I don't know. Oh, it was it was so tiny and every issue came out with so many little uh <laughs> I think each one had three variant covers. Okay. It was it was ridiculous. I'm looking to see if I can find it now cuz it's great. It's super great, but it's very different than this. Most of what he seems to write are these long epic sagas. You know, you have the saga of the Swamp Thing, you have From Hell, which is massive. <laughs> you think Watchmen is massive. Right. Try reading that. I think I tried. I'm not 100% sure I got all the way through it. I borrowed it from a friend and I was like, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? Yep, Exactly. And his bibliography is so, so long, so expansive. He's done things that I didn't even remotely know about. And he is just one of those creators who is so prolific with the way he goes about these stories that I would be impressed if there's someone out there who has read everything Alan Moore has done in the comic book world. Same here. He has such a wide range. And for those who either are lucky enough or who have the money, there are two collections of interviews by Alan Moore that are stupidly expensive. And I was lucky enough to work at a comic shop when they came out. So I was able to pre-order them and I have both of them. And I think they're each like 20 pages long. And it is essentially just Alan Moore ranting <laughs> at an interviewer, but it gives you such an interesting perspective that if you ever find them and you love Alan Moore, read it because it's fascinating. Yeah. And just to let everyone know, From Hell is 572 pages. So the comic I was talking about was called A Hypothetical Lizard. That's what it is. Wow. That's quite the name for a comic. <laughs> it's it's real special. And I think it was originally a short story that he wrote that was then turned into okay. um, a, a comic book. And I think, yeah, it's four issues long and revolves around um, a prostitute in a brothel designed to serve the rich and interested in the weird. So, and it's from the perspective of the prostitute herself. And it's very bizarre, but very interesting. Like most of Moore's stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, sounds like an Alan Moore comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not uh, Lost Girls, which I've also read, which is whew, a lot. <laughs> Don't read that unless you have a high level of uh, capacity for dealing with sexual content, but it's also pretty interesting. Yeah, well, I think that is a good place to wrap this up because, you know, Watchmen has a little bit of everything. And yes, it does. it's one of those things where you definitely have to prepare yourself to sit down and read this. You know, I don't recommend trying to read this while you're super busy or something. Set aside some time, get to it. Although if you've listened this far and you haven't read it, props to you. I'm not even totally sure. We, <laughs> we may have spoiled it. I'm not even totally convinced we spoiled everything. You know, definitely still read <laughs> it, even if you listen to this and you haven't read it. But Katie, I know you will be back on for future episodes. I definitely want to get to a lot more comics because I've been very movie heavy with the episodes lately, just because they're so easy to get to. But you and I will discuss what you will be on next. And before we go, I do want to let you all know about our Patreon. You can support the podcast there. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard the spiel. But if you haven't, and this is your first time, first, thank you. Second, 
The Patreon has a dollar a month tier where you get a thank you on the show and a $5 a month tier where you get to pick a topic. So maybe you could pick our next topic that Katie and I end up discussing. Who knows? You can find us at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. Katie, again, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this massive, massive comic book story. Thank you for having me. It was great to discuss. Of course. And as always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.